0: And we all love Edwin for being Edwin. Yeah, but I would yeah. get frustrated because there'd be no rhyme or reason to why he was attacking me. Mm. Or I would do something that he had asked for and he'd still attack me. <laughs> and then I had to be like, ah, it's okay. I just gotta let it go. Yeah. And then I found freedom. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Secret Movie Clubbers. Welcome to Secret Movie Club Podcast 153. Today, uh, this has been a long time coming and something we should have done a long time ago, but actually we didn't have the podcast when we did. Akira Kurosawa was our director of the year in 2019, and uh, just recently, at the end of March, we showed Seven Samurai, which we've shown almost once a year since our inception, It was the biggest show we ever had at the Million Dollar Theater, 800 people. We've talked about it a few times. And when I was watching it, I thought, we got to do a Seven Samurai podcast. And I could think of no one better to sit down with than Secret Movie Club team member and head projectionist, Alex Olivier, who is an amazing, on top of just being an amazing guy and an amazing team member and our head projectionist, because he's amazing at that. Also, filmmaker and extremely talented writer who just wrote a script where he, deep-dived and did tons of research into samurai and the genre. But I'm going to shut up. Uh, Alex, thank you for being here. Thank
1: you for having me. It's my pleasure. Yeah, I mean, I guess I, I can talk about my script. It's a great script, by the way. I read it. I wrote it. Uh, it's called The Tempest Sword. It uh, takes place in Sengoku era Japan, which is the same era that Seven Samurai takes place in. My script has a little more to do with, I guess, warring like castles and factions and uh, those kinds of divisions, similar to how you might see in Throne of Blood or Ran. In researching the film, I watched pretty much all the samurai movies that I could. Obviously, all the Kurosawa ones. <laughs> you should ones.
0: just say, I watched all the Yeah,
1: I mean, movies. I pretty much did. Obviously, there are a few that I still got to check off that, you know, despite being done with the research and the script, I'm still excited to watch because I'm sure they're awesome. But yeah, I mean, Kurosawa, Tadashi Imai, Hideo Gosha, Kihachi Okamoto, Masahiro Shinoda, Masaki Kobayashi, so many others, but... They all were incredible, and Kurosawa is, of those people, probably the most famous, the most prominent, and for a great reason. Seven Samurai, you know, to many, his flagship film, to you, I know. It is my Desert Island movie. It's the movie I would give the aliens. I say this (laughs) all the
0: time, and I still mean that, but when you say it all the time, you worry it's it's become a cliche, which you hope you never want it to be. But I always say, if the aliens came... And they were like, look, we got time for one movie. What is cinema? It would be a no-brainer, I'd say. Here's Seven Samurai.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a great choice. For me, it would be 2001. But Seven Samurai, I can't argue against whatsoever. So there you go.
0: So it's just going to be Alex and I talking about Seven Samurai and uh, all the places it takes us. Uh, First, we just want to let you know that by the time you hear this podcast... Tomorrow, Saturday 1st, we have our rescheduled Russ Meyer double, Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, and Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. We start our summer season next Friday, July 7th, with Paprika on 35 millimeter. Ticks are selling out for the 7.30 showing, so we added a 9.30 encore. And we'd like to wish you a happy 4th of July. As always, you can write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. Find out our entire schedule at secretmovieclub.com. Get tickets at Eventbrite. And then we just passed 20,000 downloads for the podcast, which is great. But that's actually not, I mean, I guess that is to toot our own horn. So I got to check myself internally about that because well, the reason I say it is this, Secret Movie Clubbers, is for us to keep going and to grow and to do things, we actually do need pe- new people to find out about us. So if you like what we do, we'd be really grateful if you give us a, Google review if you come to the theater a Yelp review if you listen to this podcast and can review us on iTunes or Apple Pod or Spotify or whatever all that stuff any of those reviews actually go a long way to helping new people discover Secret Movie Club and we would be very very grateful and we thank you for helping us get to 20,000 right, moving on Akira Kurosawa is considered one of the greatest uh, filmmakers of all time. I think it's not hyperbole to say that for most people, he's almost always gonna be in the top tier of filmmakers. Kurosawa actually had a 10-year or more apprenticeship at Toho as an assistant director, which is almost unheard of nowadays. But an assistant director in Japan is totally different than an AD here. The, the assistant director in Japan really was the training ground to be the director. So Kurosawa learned everything and ultimately uh, felt that if you wanted to be a great filmmaker, you had to be a great screen. You had to be great at everything. He basically took the James Cameron, Steven Spielberg, Peter Jackson, David Fincher view— Alfred Hitchcock view, that you had to do everything better than everyone else. And then you had to get a crew of people who are better than you, but you had to know what you were doing. And Kurosawa definitely did everything. In fact, probably no one matches Kurosawa in that he co-wrote his movies, directed them, and edited them by himself. I actually can't think of any other. I mean, the Coen brothers come pretty close to that. But even Spielberg, Scorsese, Fincher, Hitchcock, none of them quite did all of that the way that Kurosawa did. uh, I mean, he was just the consummate craftsperson. He made his first movie in 1943, Santura Sugata, then made a number of films. He felt that he finally got to do what he wanted to do after the war ended. He made a film called Drunken Angel, which is actually my first favorite of his, and actually his first movie he felt That's my movie. Toho left him alone. He felt he did it exactly how he wanted to do it. He'd earned the cred to do it. And that was in 47, I think. I want to say 47, 48. He went on to make Stray Dog. Then really his breakout was Rashomon, which he made in 1950. He didn't make it for Toho. He made it for another studio, Dai. and they hated it. Uh, they were going to bury it and then someone smuggled it to venice where it won the golden Mm. lion uh, which is a story you hear a lot (laughs) it's like the studio hated the movie didn't get it and that was just because it was like ahead of its time and anyway rashomon Blew the world away, and after that point, even Kurosawa himself said his life was changed forever. But then he made a few more movies, including one of my favorites, Akuru, and then he made Seven Samurai. Came out in 54, but it took him about a year and a half from writing, it's so fascinating, one of the greatest movies of all time, one of the most hardest to make, and for him it took a year and a half, <laughs> which you think about how the pace that people make movies now, and he did it in a year and a half, Yeah, which sort of humbles
1: you. It's, it's a three and a half hour movie. <laughs> It's not like he made a 90, uh, tight 90. And the only thing I can think is that he had had at that point, I think it's safe to say about 20
0: years of filmmaking experience, even though it's relatively early in his a directing career. He would still be directing for 40 more years. Kurosawa was about 43, 44 when he made it. Toshiro Mifuni. It has one of the most amazing casts. The story very simply is a village of farmers learns accidentally that these bandits are going to come in about four weeks time when their crops grow to basically do what they've been doing for a number of years because this movie takes place during a chaotic period in Japan's history where there was just wars and clashes and bandits and poverty and and just chaos and the bandits are going to come back and they're going to take all the food they're probably going to rape the women they're going to kill the men and the village elder says, we got to fight this time. We we can't do what we've been doing, which is capitulate. We have to fight. So these farmers go to the city. And they have to somehow enroll a number of samurai to fight for them, although they have no money, no glory, no honor, nothing that would incentivize a samurai, really. So they essentially either have to find hungry samurai or noble samurai, which is interesting. They do. It's one of the great casts of Japanese actors headed by Takashi Shimura as the head samurai can be. And then as uh, you don't really know his background. You just know he's like a drunken rogue, Kikuchio Toshira Mifune, who, as much as he is a rogue wants to be with the samurai and probably i would argue Mafuni's greatest role or one of them then they all go back to the village and then the movie is essentially trying to train the farmers getting ready for the bandits and all the things that happen sight and sound in those polls this movie routinely shows up in the top 20
1: I i love it obviously it's i you know i agree with you it's an amazing movie seven samurai is one of those movies for me that i saw when i was in high school in like film class and i think it was probably the first i mean maybe 2001 but one of the first movies that uh really kind of like helped me transcend beyond like the intro i guess movies that we all watch when we're teenagers like pulp fiction and fight club and whatever and an actual introduction into like world cinema and art house even though it's a three and a half hour movie it's fairly accessible i think for someone that age and for me it was kind of mind-blowing in the sense that i had never seen anything like it before i wanted to see more akira kurosawa films and i wanted to see more foreign films not just japanese but you know old foreign films and uh, i have a strong interest in all of those right now and uh, a lot of the, the debt is due to uh to seven samurai i had a, a very similar experience in that i
0: loved movies from the beginning. My family was a very movie-intoxicated family. Uh, My mom and my dad, everybody loved films. And I grew up watching movies constantly. But my intro actually into starting to deep dive beyond going to the family or just to the theaters or just going to, at that time, the video store and just getting whatever, was uh, Woody Allen and Annie Hall. Interesting. I mean, now I know it's super problematic, but uh, I had seen an Academy Awards uh, ceremony where they showed a scene from Annie Hall and I couldn't get it out of my head. And I went to the local video store and the guys around the video store were like, oh, you're thinking of Annie Hall. And I was like, wow, this movie I can feel the voice behind it. And so I watched everything Woody Allen had done up until at that time it was Shadows and Fog. And then because of him, he was obsessed with Bergman. And so then I started watching Bergman movies. And then Bergman, I would read, Ber- you know, and it, I guess all I'm saying is you start to do that your own journey. And then the filmmakers that you like, they mention other filmmakers. Yeah, yeah. And then you start to get a sense of what you really like. And that's how I ping-ponged. And pretty soon, I know it was like Woody Allen, Bergman, Fellini. Because then Bergman would talk about Fellini, and Bergman and Fellini were peers, and they were the two everybody was talking about. And then I think it was probably like truffaut Godard, but then at some point in there, it became Kurosawa, because my dad was really into Kurosawa and Seven Samurai as well. Seven Samurai, the making of it is one of the fabled makings of—it was— A super difficult production. It was the most expensive movie Japan had ever made up until that time. The studio actually uh, shut it down four times. But Kurosawa knew they had put so much money into it that they couldn't just write it off. Kurosawa put everything into that movie. They didn't shoot on the lot. They built the village in some remote part of Japan. Everything was down to the details. So this movie... It has this fabled production history like David Lean's Lawrence of Arabia or Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy or um, James Cameron's Titanic, whatever you think of those movies, or D.W. Griffith's Intolerance, Francis Ford Coppola's Godfather in a different way, where the making of the movie sounded like it was in some ways an excruciating effort. But then it was a huge hit. What do you think it is about the movie that makes it great?
1: You know, it has that Citizen Kane thing where it was one of the first movies to do things and popularize things that we now see every day but beyond that it's also i think just the movie itself it kind of speaks for itself in the sense that when you watch a lot of these samurai movies as i have done you know when i was researching my script you tend to find a lot of commonalities a lot of them are you know an individual samurai who is struggling between like loyalty to his like bushido and his clan and the way he has thought all of his life. Can you tell us what Bushido is? It's like the code that samurai would live by and adhere to that would emphasize strict what they can and cannot do. It was oftentimes designed in such a way that the the individual person would obey their lord no matter what their lord became before their family, before themselves, before their whole anything in their life basically. So you have often these individuals struggling between their loyalty to their lord, to their bushido code and like something that they know is like fundamentally or morally you know, wrong. And there is the conflict in many. I mean, you know, you have Yajimbo, you have Rashomon, you know, you have all these kind of individualized, internalized stories. But then Seven Samurai, it has that, but it does it on like a grand stage. I mean, you have these samurai who are just doing the right thing for no money. Interesting to
0: what you said, though, these samurai are different than the other movies. And if you could explain it to us, too, because interestingly, Kurosawa chose for a samurai epic Samurai who weren't tethered to Lord.
1: Oh, sure, sure. I guess uh, when I say you have that in this movie, I guess what I mean is you have that in that it's like <laughs> subverted. It's not that. So, uh, yeah, probably not the best way for me to phrase it. You have that by not
0: having it. No, I think it's actually a great observation to maybe Kurosawa's genius. Yeah, yeah. That probably Japanese audiences were used to a certain way of telling a samurai story. And he did that thing that a lot of brilliant directors do where he turned it on its head somehow. So it was about samurai, but it had nothing to do with gaining, you know, like that struggle all the samurai that are enlisted essentially don't have a master. They're masterless samurai. Yes. And could you explain what that means? Because that's a certain category of samurai. Sure,
1: yeah. Uh, The ronin is what they're called, is samurai with no master. And when you hear that, I guess, definition or description, you think, oh, okay, great. Samurai with no master. They're like free unto themselves. They're independent
0: contractors. Exactly.
1: Well, yeah, you think of them as free or independent. Exactly. But it's actually, it was considered shameful not to have a master to be a ronin. And if you were a ronin, and you were looked down upon so you know the movie it's these run in these kind of humiliated samurai working for nothing for people who have nothing Pretty much putting their whole lives on the line for nothing other than doing something that's right, which is an extremely moving story that's being told. And Kurosawa is the one to tell it. He's a master. He tells it in about as a moving a way as I can think of. I've watched the movie almost every year
0: since my early twenties, so that must mean that I've seen it twenty, twenty-five times. And certainly, the quiet voice in my consciousness always notes that they're masterless samurai, and always notes that's a really important part. But what you just said. I don't think I'd ever fully consciously thought, which is that in some ways, they're walking around with a kind of shame or stigma, which maybe makes them more empathetic to the plight of the farmers. Because I think one of the hallmarks of what makes Kurosawa great, in my opinion, is that I love humanist filmmakers. I love humanist filmmakers who have tremendous empathy and don't really judge. And those movies are great. But I also love amazing, really tight, good storytelling and action filmmaking and cinema filmmaking. And those two don't often go hand in hand. Totally. Yeah, like humanist filmmakers often, you'll love their movies, but they might be slice of life or they might not be very story driven. Or you may love action movies and these like cinema cinema movies, but they're not necessarily the humanist masterworks. Kurosawa is one of the Few, I would say less than five, in the history of cinema who somehow were able to do both. Why I love Seven Samurai is I always tell people, yeah, it's three and a half hours, but it flies by. It feels like a 90 minute movie to me. Totally. And the storytelling is impeccable because, first scene, we're going to come invade this village. And you know, you're promised in the first five minutes of the movie an amazing climax. So it buys you three hours of character study and looking at the world and existence and life, and you just feel you're in good hands. And again, I'm not actually, these are totally different movies, but let me use this example. Even if you'd never read J.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, you go through these three movies because in the first half hour of the first movie you know they got to get to Mordor to throw the ring of power so you're going to go through it because you know and actually it's funny that sounds so simple to say but most filmmakers aren't really that great at that kind of storytelling what you just said is there's this tremendous empathy in humanism which probably was even a little blasphemous and scandalous in Japan and yet at the same time there was just rich filmmaking
1: yeah absolutely I mean listen I love Mizuguchi and I love Ozu but when people say they've can find those guys a little dry for their tastes i'm like hey you know i get it i love those guys but i understand you know you have to really be in like the right mood to see can you set up those filmmakers for people who might not uh, be familiar oh sure with them? yeah totally i mean they are i guess contemporaries of kurosawa they were probably a little earlier they they were in fact a yeah little they're earlier. a little older than yeah him. He, than, he often
0: talks about them with a kind of reverence
1: and uh they make these like japanese neorealist slice of life films that are also very humanist but they're also very I guess they can be very devoid of like narrative or not plot but story. It's more just about like feeling for the characters in their films and maybe like domestic struggles that they are portraying. And they're very uh they're very small. Ozu's
0: a classic example, and I love Ozu. But I like I remember I wanna say this the right way, but I'm a huge fan of I think Think it's it's either late spring or early spring. Yeah,
1: it's t- it's tough to keep track of them because those titles. They are, they, Ozu made
0: a lot of movies that his most famous is Tokyo Story. Yeah, but uh, he made a lot that had to do with the seasons. But yeah, like late spring, early summer. Yeah, yeah. I think late spring is the one with Satsuko Hara and Ishi Ryu, where she's a devoted daughter to her widowed father, and she's deciding whether to get married or not because to get married means leaving him. The whole movie essentially builds. To a truth that a child does eventually have to start their own family and a parent has to let them go. And there's a heartbreak at that. And it's so profound. But it's not exactly Mad Max Fury, right? Yeah,
1: totally. I mean, the reason I bring it up is I was going to mention, you know, we've seen humanism in Kurosawa's films prior to Seven Samurai. He's no stranger. It's not like this is his first foray into it. Ikuru. Yeah, I mean, Ikuru. I mean, it's textbook example i was going to say look at stray dog you know stray dog has as much humanism as hero and Stephen Samurai, but it also has like a exciting noir mystery kind of going on as well but that's the yeah.
0: like that's the thing about kurosawa that i'm really obsessed with um like i've said i mean i'm struggling right now i'm 45 i've made a feature film you worked on it after world <laughs> game and right now i'm in the bowels of editing and it needs tons and tons of work and i have no idea how it's going to turn out and I hope good. I'm I'm still working. I still believe in it. It's just a lot of work <laughs> to make it good. But the thing I've always loved about Kurosawa was he would marry his personal concerns to a story that would probably be interesting to anybody, I feel. I just, for me, like my kind of, I'm like, that's my kind of cinema. You know, how could I smuggle in my thing, but maybe tell a time travel story? And so Kurosawa, he just, and after this, he would, you know, Yojimbo, uh, you and I were talking about how we're actually a big fan of the second one. Yes. Zero, Yeah which really has to do with this weird thematically this idea that the people they're rescuing like the systems corrupt and even the people they're rescuing are kind
1: of corrupt but it's still sort of worth it to do which is also touched upon in Seven Samurai not that the villagers are corrupt but that it's not necessarily as black and white as the film might initially seem
0: one of the pinnacles to me of cinema is what you just said which is that even though we essentially have three groups of people in the movie the bandits the samurai, and the farmers. As the movie goes on, none of them are shown to be perfect or to be totally evil. And in fact, we see... Their world from all their points of view. The bandits, a little less so than the samurai and the farmers, but still the bandits come out more empathetic than you would imagine. How did that hit you when you saw that? When, like, in the middle of the movie, you find out the farmers killed running samurai, but then the samurai, like, attacked the farmers? Or... Maybe
1: this is not the greatest analogy, but it came to me anyway. It's almost like when you're watching, like, a nature documentary and you're like, oh, these animals are out there surviving. It's like, it's so neat and good for them, and fascinating. And then, like, you see one of them, like, Rip up like <laughs> another animal, and you're like, oh! F-. <laughs> <laughs> I, but I guess that is what it is. It's part of their life. It's part of their living, and you know, it, it adds an interesting layer to the movie for sure.
0: Now, I'm not one of these people. I I consider human beings part of the animal world. Like sure, sure. I just think of us as animals. What I'm trying to say is, you know, there's there was this weird thing. I think it's less now in our time, but in, in the 20th and 19th century and before, you would always read these artists and writers talking about how man, what separated man from animal, you know, and it was like, he can think, or she can think, or they... We can reflect. or the, And I'm like, well, first off, we don't know what animals are thinking. So that's presumptuous. <laughs> yeah. We just don't speak animal language. Secondly, why we're part of the earth. They're part of the earth. This is just me. But the interesting thing about what you said is it's probably unlikely that when hyenas kill a baby lion that they feel guilt about it. Like they're like, oh. But I don't know. Maybe yeah, they. Yeah, I mean,
1: I suppose it's possible. Maybe they go
0: home and they have killer's
1: guilt or <laughs> they're like, we got to eat. I guess from everything we can surmise, it seems unlikely, but not impossible. Yeah, we,
0: but we don't know, which yeah, is yeah, maybe yeah. the most important thing. Exactly. But it does seem in the animal world like a lot of animals do what they got to do. And certainly that's true in the human world, too, without a lot of self reflection. But something, I guess, because we are human animals, we do seem endowed with this reflection about. Is what we're doing good or bad? And what does that mean? And Seven Samurai seems concerned with that idea a little bit. Like, what is truly noble? Because at the same time, human nature can be, and we see it to this day, there are a lot of people who don't think that way. There are a lot of people, do what I gotta do. And I'm not judging that. But then there are a lot of people who are like, is this the right thing to do? One of the things that has been so important to me about Seven Samurai is that those samurai they go to protect the villagers, and this is said at the very beginning of the movie, it's, it's clear, not for any material gain. They're not going to get any money. Not for any promotion or ambition. There's no master there. There's no head of some noble family who's going to be impressed by what they're doing. They're literally fighting for farmers that no one's heard about. And there's nothing they're getting out of it other than it's the right thing to do. And it's an action that they're doing that they know is the right thing to do. And that is its own reward. And that, to me, seems like one of the most profound... I feel like movies very rarely, I feel... And I love cinema. I've devoted my life to cinema. But I don't know that movies usually are great at philosophy. You've got 90 minutes, two hours. And when people try to do philosophy in movies or politics, or I I sometimes feel it's preachy, which I don't think movies should. I think that's always bad when movies are preachy. But in Seven Samurai, its worldview is very profound to me. And it seems to be you do things for the thing itself, knowing that you did it and no one else needs to know it. And that's what you should strive to be in life.
1: I don't know. Spoiler alert. We can start talking about the ending of the movie. Yeah, go for it. The very final shot of the movie it's you know the low angle of the hill with the graves of the fallen samurai and the surviving samurai looking at it you know and they say this is not our victory i mean i'm a classic overthinker i overthink once everything is done i can't stop thinking about i'm sure i'm going to do it for this podcast episode but i feel like Everything is concluded and they have to be wondering, like, did we make the right choice? Could we have done something different? Was it still the right thing? And probably I would assume that they come to the conclusion that, I mean, what would we have done differently? I guess maybe tried harder not to get killed, but we wouldn't have not fought the battle. And therein, I think, is the philosophy is that I think the viewer can answer the question rather than like, the characters giving it to them. I mean, that's my—that's the answer I would have for those characters. Someone else could have a very different answer. I don't think it would be invalid just because it's different. I had never thought about it that way, but I think it's a
0: testament, again, to Kurosawa and his co-writer's brilliance, because you're right. Even though there is so much philosophy in the movie, strangely, questions are posed. They're not answered. But they're posed in such a intelligent provocative way that you do think about these things.
1: Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of movies that pose questions without like enough substance or enough weight to them where it doesn't really mean anything. But the questions themselves in this film are are given the gravity that it merits. Another thing that the movie does fascinatingly is
0: we, we pretty much know the seven, all seven samurai pretty well. Of the farmers, uh, and I'm just pulling this number out of the air, but I'd say there are probably five to seven farmers who are very delineated characters. Specifically, the farmer who gives his house, who really is the one who wants to fight. We don't know exactly what's happened to him, but we, we pretty much early on realized something happened to his wife with the bandits. Yeah. The daughter of one of the Monzo... Uh, who falls in love with the young samurai, the village elder, and so on and so, and then there's a uh, Yohei. Yohei, yeah. Yohei we we kind of get to know under Toshiro Mafuni's tutelage or whatever. But what's interesting is many of the farmers make, specifically like Monzo, who I'm never a big fan of Monzo, but you can't fault him for what he's doing. He's a dad, he's got a daughter and he basically is worried that the samurai are going to have sex with his daughter, basically. Or like we love Kuccio, the Toshiro Mifune character, but he makes some pretty serious blunders in the film. What are your thoughts on the characterization? Because what's fascinating is these characters are so rich and deep, and in my opinion, I'm so engaged by them. But Kurosawa does this thing I don't often, I don't see in other cinemas sometimes where they still make horrible mistakes, which is more true to life to me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you think of you know the iconic Mifune roles, the two that invariably pop up are Seven Samurai and Yojimbo. Yojimbo, he's the same character also in Sanjuro. In those movies, he seems to always have all the answers, especially in Sanjuro. The other people in the village are all constantly the ones making the mistakes, and he's correcting them. But in Seven Samurai, he's you know kind of the opposite. He doesn't really know what he's doing. He's just flying by the seat of his pants. and Sometimes it works out okay for him, but every now and then, sometimes it really very seriously does not. I think it gives the character more of an, I don't know, authentic quality it goes along i guess kind of with how the movie is shown to us if you think about the juxtaposition between a film like 7 samurai and yojimbo you know yojimbo is very precise in its staging in its shot i think its shot scope it's very grandiose 7 samurai is a little more it's not like rough in the sense that they didn't know how to make it like rudimentary in that sense I think it's just it's got a more of a maybe a rudimentary or I don't even know how to phrase it but primitive not, but yeah, in, in the artistic sense not as clean of, as an aesthetic probably
0: by design
1: yeah I was gonna say I, I mean I think it is by design because Seven Samurai is a movie where people are just kind of clinging by their fingernails so as not to twist in the wind <laughs> and the fact that Mufune's character in that movie doesn't really know what he's doing aligns perfectly with that
0: did so much research for your script what what I was so impressed with is and and this is no knock on the Edward Zwick movie The Last Samurai but (laughs) when I saw The Last Samurai starring Tom Cruise I was like what is this (laughs) like why am I watching a movie about a white American as a samurai there there just seems to be something off here
1: that was me sure I've I've admittedly I've you know the samurai movies I watched I haven't seen the Last Samurai. Well,
0: and also to call Tom Cruise the Last Samurai, it's well, yeah, like, yeah, it's
1: like come on. <laughs> but
0: when you wrote your script, it all takes place in the samurai world. It's pure Japanese. Number one, it is incredible. Well, the thing you know as a reader is it's clearly very well researched. You can feel that, and it, it you don't feel missteps. You don't feel a, an outside in. Gaze. It feels more inside out, which I was really impressed with oh, uh, in your you. writing. And so you you and I had been talking for months about your research on that because you had been watching movies and writing. So it, before we go on, I just want to say that—so Kurosawa had said, and I'm going to throw it to you, that when he made Seven Samurai, he had felt that the genres, Chambara and Jitigeki
1: Which also, interestingly enough, obviously we know the big influence Kurosawa had on uh, George Lucas, the word Jedi comes from Jidageki. Oh. <laughs>
0: There you go. That those two genres,
1: they're different, almost in a weird way, like Nō no and Kabuki. But... The distinction is Jidageki is pretty much Japanese period piece. So you can have a film like The Ballad of Narayama. There's no samurai. There's no anything like that. But it's a Jidageki film. A Chambara film is a movie that has sword fighting or has some element of swordplay. And
0: tends to be a little more genre, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, with swordplay. Yeah. With swordplay comes the genre. I guess, staples. And Kurosawa had said that
0: he wanted to make a Jedi Geki, but he wanted it to be really rich, really entertaining, and he talked about he wanted to make it. it's a quote that I have had that I look at all the time, he wanted it to be a really rich, satisfying meal because he had felt that a lot of his, the movies made in Japan were a little dry, just sort of to what you were saying. Right, right. And Kurosawa is very criticized in Japan for wearing his Western influences on his sleeve. He was often considered the most Western of the Japanese filmmakers of that time. And Kurosawa very openly talked about how he would read American and European writers. And he often talked about Dostoevsky and Balzac and Dickens and how he was always reading them. And he got criticized for that because people within Japan and the critics often felt his movies were a little too Western.
1: I mean, you know, as a Westerner, Talking about an Easterner's criticism of an Eastern filmmaker, I don't want to diminish their thoughts. I mean, right, no, totally. I'm, I didn't
0: mean to set you up for an impossible. No, sure, question. yeah.
1: I, I just, I guess, I mean to preface it by saying, like, those are probably valid criticisms. I also happen to find Kurosawa's films all the stronger for his, I guess, non traditional ways of filmmaking his his western influences the way I always looked at it
0: and I think you're you know I need to take a page from what you're doing too I, I'm not Japanese I don't even know what the criticisms were sure. because I'm not I, I didn't grow up in Japan or I, maybe if I saw them I'd be like oh you know like for, we just showed silence and I know the Japanese were dealing constantly with potential incursions from western business people and missionaries and certainly Europe does not have a great track record when it comes to other cultures So seeing it from the Japanese viewpoint, you'd be like, oh, I get it. I I get the criticism. For me, as a, a Westerner and American, I've always felt that often the strongest works tend to be hybrids they tend to be um i want to say this the right way but in the same way like when you see two things come together to form something new like afro-cuban jazz so you get african rhythms you get latino or spanish music they meet in the caribbean and cuba and suddenly you get this afro-cuban music that didn't exist with either culture prior but it's it's like nothing else you've ever heard and so to maybe get kurosawa's love of john ford westerns mixed with the more traditional Jedi Geki creates this thing that you've never seen before. You know, when you see like uh, his modern day movie, like High and Low I'm obsessed with. Yeah. Which is a Japanese film but it's adapted from an American crime novel. Yeah. That probably took place in Chicago or New York. I don't know where. But instead he transposes it to Tokyo and it's like, you're like,
1: this is crazy. Yeah, I mean, High and Low, it's, it's, it's very like Hitchcockian really. Totally. Probably, if I had to guess, a lot of the criticism for Kurosawa came from japanese traditionalists maybe like nationalists i know he did propaganda films early in his career but then he pivoted away from that oh he hated them. yeah i mean yeah i mean he 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 denounced the films but then you watch like no regrets for youth you know it's very like anti-militaristic fascistic society which probably didn't curry him a lot of favor with Still a lot of people living in Japan. But it also probably did with, you know, the other half of the populace. He's such an
0: interesting guy in his worldview. I think he was a little more individualistic than people around him were comfortable with. And I think his movies celebrate the individual sometimes. Sure. Even though I think Seven Samurai is, is absolutely a celebration of the group as well. Yeah, yeah. He's sort of this weird guy who believed in both. He believed in that Western idea of the individual as a driver of agency and action, but he also clearly had socialist and openly said so, and actually was very friendly with Soviet Russia and made a film in Soviet Russia and believed in the importance of the collective group and had been part of, when he was a really young artist, of some social collective. So he was was kind of a walking ball of contradiction.
1: Yeah. The most interesting artists tends to be, I
0: think. Totally. (laughs) You know, we haven't even gotten into specifically the filmmaking of seven samurai which i think is some of the greatest filmmaking of all time and
1: sequences what are
0: some of your favorite moments
1: uh filmmaking beats i guess going hand in hand with what you had said earlier about how we are promised like a grand finale by the end of the movie at the very beginning it takes its time it really takes its time getting there and i don't mean that as a could i mean i mean it as actually praise of the film because the uh, gathering of the group takes a really long time and the training takes a really long time. And those are both now, I guess, like staples you'd find in movies or even tropes now. They've almost been, they've like been worn to death. I mean, you didn't really have it before. You had some groups maybe assembled in, in like Stagecoach or like the Asphalt Jungle, but it's not exactly the same the way that Kurosawa does it in Seven Samurai where they're gathering a group for this specific goal. It's like an hour finding all the samurai and getting them together. And it's, you know, it's great. I feel like in taking his time, we really get to know each character, what differentiates them from the other samurai and uh, kind of their motivations for doing this, which if you had taken any less time, it would have been, I don't know, muddled or so. We have a long time doing that. We have a long time spent training the villagers and like prepping their farmland for defenses, which is also fascinating. You know, it furthers the narrative, but it's also just kind of a a good point in the film to stop and kind of just get a sense of like what their life is and get a sense of their environment. It's almost like a, I guess, maybe a little neorealist sequence in the movie, but while also furthering the plot along. And then obviously the finale is amazing and epic. You know, we have the classic clash of the groups the bandits versus the samurai it's the showdown and it's thrilling it's exciting we do a lot of wide shots in the rain very grandiose but also kind of ugly in a sense it's a really fine line that he walks and he walks it beautifully i think one of my favorite books of all time (laughs) it's actually balancing my microphone right now (laughs) is
0: kurosawa's something like an autobiography uh, and at the back of it they print 30 pages of his notes to young filmmakers I recommend anybody read it and one of the things that he keeps trying to drive home or he said this I'm intuiting it I don't want to get this wrong but the film is very much like music and Kurosawa absorbed everything he read he listened to classical music of all kinds he was he was a painter himself he was really into painting and I've always felt personally that movies are the most similar to music and dreams to me. Dreams uh, obviously are a slightly different thing than, than man-made art forms, but I, you know, dreams are dreams. And, and I find Seven Samurai, if you're really into symphonies, which are broken up into four movements, you can almost sense the movements of Seven Samurai. The getting of the samurai is sort of the first movement training of the farmers is the second movement and then i actually find that when they go to raid the bandits fort that's maybe the hinge between the second movement and the third movement and then the third movement is the battle starts and then basically the fourth movement is the final
1: battle yeah i guess i also neglected to mention that the battle sequence is really long which is also a great strength.
0: Almost as long as the finding of the samurai. Yeah, totally. It almost goes on for like a, a 40 minutes or something.
1: Yeah, but it's not like redundant just fighting the whole time. It's like strategy and everything that they've planned up to this point is essentially, you know, the dominoes are falling over now rather than being set up. One of the
0: things you were saying about now it's been used ad nauseum is the final battle happens in the rain. And Kurosawa, more than almost anybody, has, has really been known for introducing elements of weather into his filmmaking. So if you love Throne of Blood, it ends in fog. It begins in fog and ends in fog. If you love Yojimbo, I believe there's a lot of wind in Yojimbo. And in Seven Samurai, we get the final battle in the rain. And it's muddy and, uh, as you said, dirty. And this is the final battle. They're going to let all the bandits in. And the way that Kurosawa shot that sequence was... They set up 10 cameras all around this village they had built, and they just, the actors and the stunt people just fought the battle. Like, (laughs) there was not the way we do it where it's like, let's get that shot. I'm sure sure they punched in and they did pickups and the things they needed, but they basically staged the battle and shot like 10 minute chunks of it where and you feel that as you say it feels like a real battle that we're watching and it's nuts because you're yeah. like watching Toshiro Mifune or Takashi Shimura you know like yeah. get his bow yeah and then you see Toshiro Mifune fall with the swords and then he's like fighting and you're like what the, yeah. those are the real
1: actors and yeah I mean he's really falling in the mud in like his face and his <laughs> like bare ass there you know it's <laughs> these are the kinds of things that probably sucked to make, but the film is all the better for it. Kurosawa and Mufuni would say later, they'd laugh, that
0: Mufuni would say, had I been even, he was 32 when yeah. he made it, and he said, had I even been three years older, there was no way I would do what I did in that movie. Yeah. And Kurosawa said, had I been a few years older, there's no way I could have made it. I think the implication being it was such a hard shoot. A physical toll, A yeah. physical
1: toll that they had to be the ages they were. And, they, they, yeah. Credit to Takashi Shimura because he was like 50 when he That's what, yeah, yeah, I always
0: point out to people like, Like, it's funny they're saying it because Takashi Shimura was older than all of them and he's doing it.
1: (laughs) And I think he was doing Godzilla at the same time. Oh, man. (laughs) That was, what, 54, right? Yeah. Yeah. Two bangers.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Year of Shimura. (laughs) We all hope we can make a bunch of movies. It would be a dream to do that. But most careers, you have one or two that really stand out. Obviously, Kurosawa's, you know, the the top folks, they have five to ten. But they're, those greatest movies, the thing I always take from them is if you want to make that kind of movie, you have to buckle up because to get that level is going to be an almost unimaginable amount of effort, no matter how talented you are. And I don't know how many people have it in them. I don't know if I have it in me to just keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And no, we don't have it yet. We don't have it yet. No, we got, we got to do this. And then go to the studio that's giving you money and be like, all the money you thought I need three times that. Yeah, And then go back to it and be like,
1: okay, all that money, I need two more times that. I... It takes an uncommon mind. and He seemed like a really intense guy. I mean, he, he tried to kill himself in the 70s because his movies were not like as successful. I mean, I feel like he really just breathed, a eat, sleep, breathes cinema. And uh, you kind of have to be to make the body of work that he left behind. Agreed. You said it better than I did. And I I think that's exactly correct. And I think those filmmakers...
0: They're making the truly, truly great works. And, you know, and Kurosawa said he had a blast making his movies. He yeah. said they were also a joy to create, sure. which I also believe. I don't think that to make great art, you have to well, yeah, suffer. That you have
1: to suffer. Yeah, I didn't mean to suggest that. Oh, no,
0: yeah, you yeah. weren't. <laughs> no, 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 no that's, but what I'm saying is that's not what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. But I do think, weirdly, I think you have to be joyous and suffer at the same time. Mm. I do believe that. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure some great movies were made and they were just like a blast. <laughs> I don't know. Do you ever think about that, about the rigor with which you have to approach your work to make it truly great.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, you know, I've crewed on very small sets in very minor capacities, and that is exhausting. <laughs> I can't imagine doing, you know, Titanic or Lord of the Rings. I feel like I'd go home and sleep for nine years before I could do anything again. <laughs> hey, Craig. Uh, uh,
0: I'm nine, eight minutes away from the club. What do you think of Seven Samurai? Uh, I love Magnificent Seven. You know, Yule Brenner, Steve McQueen, Bronson, a uh, couple of folks. And Irma Bernstein's score is amazing. All right, um, we'll, well, we'll see you in 10 minutes. We'll see you in 10. <laughs> okay. Peace. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> All right. I guess, yeah, you know, good for Edwin for mentioning it. I guess the one thing we've neglected to talk about is how Seven Samurai influenced the Western. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. Kurosawa was influenced by Westerns. We mentioned, but uh, then it came back around, and then it comes back around even full circle after that. Obviously, Seven Samurai was remade as The Magnificent Seven. Yojimbo was remade as... Fistful. F- uh, yeah, Fistful of Dollars and Django. <laughs> but then, you know, you get Hideo Gosha making, like, Goyokin, which is influenced by those spaghetti westerns. But it's a, it's a samurai movie. Oh, that's, well, What's the movie called? Goyokin, with uh, Tatsuya Nakadai, oh. from 69, uh, I believe. What does that translate as? It's uh, Official Gold. It's, uh, that's a great one. I do think...
0: That The more you make movies and the more you you live in cinema, I mean the more you realize I think what we think movie making is early on to make a seven Samurai or a Lord of the Rings, and people have said this, but yes, you have to have a vision, yes, you have to fight for that vision, yes, you have to have a sense of the story, but you're also like waging a war you're like you're a general <laughs> with a thousand people, and your ability to deploy and trust your departments and know that your departments are gonna that's a thing that yeah people think they know about that but i think that's a whole thing unto itself too if you want to get to that level of yeah. filmmaking
1: not to neglect kurosawa's co-writers i know he co-screen wrote seven samurai with shinobu hashimoto who he would work with, again, on Throne of Blood. Uh, he had worked with him previously on uh, uh, Rashomon. Hashimoto was also the screenwriter of The Sword of Doom and Harakiri and Samurai Rebellion. So uh, definitely I want to give credit to him as well. Oh, totally. Yeah. I, I've
0: said in previous pods, but Kurosawa said specifically he worked with co-writers because... If he just wrote it, it would be one-dimensional. Well,
1: yeah, yeah, for sure. But, I I mean, what you're saying about Kurosawa as general of this like battalion, you know, Hashimoto is part of it for sure, but I feel like you can notice the difference between like a pure Hashimoto script without Kurosawa and with mm. him. I mean, for better or worse, obviously, I shouldn't say obviously, but Harakiri is my favorite samurai movie ever. It's one of my, just my favorite films of all time. If 2001 didn't exist, Harakiri would be my favorite film of all time. And that's Hashimoto writing on his own. But you can notice the difference of uh, pure Hashimoto script versus one with Kurosawa. I mean, Harakiri is very kind of—it's kind of a bummer. It's a very bleak, (laughs) you know, kind of dour movie, which appeals to me, but it doesn't necessarily to everyone. But, you you know, you don't necessarily have the humanism of Kurosawa.
0: But those uh, movies—I've seen Samurai Rebellion, Harakiri, and you said Sword of Doom. Sword of Doom, yeah. That's another huge bummer. I've seen them all. Yeah. Uh, What's interesting, and I'm wondering it, though, is that it it sounds like... Is it Hashimoto? Yes. His feel for samurai and the Jedi Geki or Chambara, he clearly knew great stories.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely.
0: So it it, it sort of makes sense to me then that Kurosawa would be like, you're the samurai story guy.
1: Sure, yeah. I mean, he's one of the the greats of all time, for sure. He also did uh, Tadashi Imai's Revenge, which is a great one that not a lot of people have seen. And so
0: I think, too, when you're a filmmaker... And I don't have it, and I'm trying to learn it, but you have to have that humility of, man, the movie would be a lot better with that writer. Sure. Like, that writer would, would make these scenes sing. You yeah, know? yeah, totally. And that's, I think that is a hallmark of a genius uh, filmmaker, is going like, hey, maybe I'm a good writer, but man, if I want to make a samurai movie... Get this guy. Sure, yeah. I mean, it's almost like
1: the the producer side of their brain. He has to be. It's like you said. He has to be great at everything when it comes to filmmaking. And he, you know, it's one thing to write a great. It's one thing to direct a great film. It's also just another thing to know who to involve and just like what is a good idea and what isn't. Maybe that's trite to say, but. (laughs) It seems like Kurosawa kind of nailed it every time, at every opportunity. What do you think
0: is the influence of Kurosawa, or could be the influence of Kurosawa? Well,
1: I'd figure you'd be hard-pressed to find, like, a serious modern filmmaker and ask them who their favorite directors are and have any of them not mention Akira Kurosawa. You know, not only did he produce an enormous body of work, but it's tremendous pretty much from wall to wall. And spanning decades and decades, the guy gave his life to cinema. He is one of the titans of cinema, one of the the gods of anyone who appreciates cinema as an art form. Uh, it's almost like <laughs> there's so much that I can't think of like a single thing to say that's like specific about what his influence would be. Action filmmaking sure, period piece filmmaking sure. No, he did noir. He he influenced. I mean, <laughs> yeah, every I, like I'm. I'm getting flustered over my words because there's so much to say i can't think of a single thing right yeah
0: (laughs) it's he steeped himself in every aspect of what movie making is and it was a you know it's a different time it was a different system you always have to be open-eyed about that about how systems work and cinema and you know it's interesting now we're in a different time too and how movies alchemically work with other media interestingly uh just this last week uh Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom got released. And I, I haven't played video games really uh, since Ocarina of Time. That was the last game I played. And then I had to stop because I just, I was like, I, I, I get too hooked on them. Sure, But I saw this Tears of a Kingdom and Craigie and I had been looking at like the trailers. And I was like, Craigie, yeah, I may have to get this. Guy. <laughs> but what I was thinking was, it was a bit of a bummer to me that I was more excited about a video game release than I am necessarily about... The movie releases, because movies are trying to be video games or video games, you know, blah, blah, blah. But what I mean in a positive, optimistic way is I do believe in movies and the theatrical experience and the movie magic and the vitality and the importance of it. And I do think people want to go and be wowed at the theaters. But I feel weirdly like we almost have to relearn it, almost like we're relearning how to be social after COVID.
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess if we're talking about Kurosawa's influence, I agree with you that the great theatrical experience is getting rarer and rarer. But I think that when we do have it, when we find a a film that really captures that for us, you know, odds are if you were to ask the filmmaker if they're a Kurosawa fan or not, probably they would be just, you know, if I'm watching like, uh, what did I look? but I'm watching, like, The Northman or something, which I thought was great last year. Probably Robert Eggers is a Ron fan or Throne of Blood. Right. You know, less so for... <laughs> I watched uh, with Connor on his Monday Night Movie stream. We just watched The Pope's Exorcist. That Russell, Russell Crowe movie. Yeah. You know, it's terrible. But I feel like that guy is probably not into Ron and Throne <laughs> of Blood. <laughs> So for whatever that's worth, <laughs> I have one more piece of, I yeah, guess, please, go. trivia about uh, Seven Samurai. In the very beginning, when they're walking around in the village looking for samurai to recruit, one of the random samurai that I think the camera, like, whip pan follows as we're looking at different people is Tatsuya Nakadai in his very first movie ever, just as a little extra samurai walking around. And so here you have the guy in Mifune's Breakout movie, who would eventually replace Mifune for Kurosawa as his leading man in the Mifune role after they had their falling out after Redbeard, when Tatsuya Nakadai would take over the lead of uh, Kagamusha and Ron. Alex, I just I thank you for for talking Seven Samurai again. My pleasure. I could talk on and on. <laughs> I could too. <laughs>
0: If it weren't for respect and consideration of Connor, <laughs> I would make this I would make this podcast three and a half hours, yeah, yeah. but uh, we're going to end it here. I just want to let you know, if you want to see what we're doing, go to secretmovieclub.com. You can write us at community at secretmovieclub.com. You can get tickets at Eventbrite. We would love if you gave us reviews or rated us. It all helps. And uh, as always, this episode was edited by our chief creative content officer, Connor Lloyd-Cruz. Thank you, Connor. And next week for Secret Movie Club Podcast 154, the gang is back to talk 4th of July and summer holiday movies. And until then, thank you, Alex, for taking the time. Thank you. All right. Take care. Love you. Too. Sometimes I'll even show movies that he says he's coming to see, and then I'll go outside and he's like watching
1: The Taking of Beverly Hills. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah. From the 80s. When you said you wanted to see
1: this, I was working in front of house on The Wild Bunch and Straw Dogs, and he came because he says he loves Peck and Pop, but he left in the middle to go like hang out and watch, like, I don't remember what VHS, but some VHS. It's like, these are your movies. What are you doing? <laughs>